please go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'll remind you, we have uh, our picnic afterwards. Some of the games are getting set up, and we have a million hamburgers, I think, and hot dogs, so please eat them. Uh, and if you brought some food, we'll set some tables over there. You can share that with others. And just a good time of fellowship uh, to enjoy one another's company, maybe meet some people we've never known before. Uh, so I do encourage you to stick around for that. Let me pray for our time together. Father, we are grateful for the testimony of these four. Lord, four individuals, I, I suspect, maybe don't even know one another. And yet we see your work in their life individually. And Lord, you are so good. You're so true. You're so faithful. Lord, as that uh, poem says, you're like that hound of heaven that hunts down your own. And you worked in the lives of all four of these people and you brought them to yourself. And then we look around this space and you've worked in the lives of so many of us here, hundreds of us here. And so, Father, we are asking that we would continue to have hearts that are sensitive to your work in our lives. We're asking that as we come before the word of God, just as much as we're reading it, that it would truly read our hearts. Lord, it would show, it would expose, it would challenge us, it would grow us. But we know that uh, we are not yet sanctified in Christ Jesus. There's, there's that working that still needs to happen. You've made us your own, certainly, and in that sense, we are made holy. And yet there's a lot of the old man that still seeks to rear his or her head. And so use your word, Lord. Use it this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were with us as we began chapter 5, I, I think this is our second or third study now in 1 Timothy chapter 5, you might recall that Paul began in chapter 5 to liken the church to a family. He, he used it as sort of a metaphor. Everyone knows what a family looks like or should look like. They know what a dad is, a mom is, brothers, sisters are. And so he uses that familiar uh, metaphor and he compares the church to it. And it's something that Paul and a number of the New Testament writers do where they'll liken it to something that a lot of us are familiar with. And so we have that, uh, that metaphor there of the body. We have a metaphor of a flock of animals or sheep of some sorts and the shepherd that would lead them. We, we have the metaphor of a nation and how a nation is to operate and you know all for one, one for all, that sort of idea. But here again, in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul uses the metaphor of a family. And, and as we studied last week together, we learned that different family members would need to be treated differently. And so Paul told Timothy, look, when you're working with the older men, you need to treat them as fathers. When you're working with the older women, you need to treat them as mothers, brothers, excuse me, uh, younger men, younger women as brothers and as sisters. And the wisdom that Paul was communicating there that Timothy might have success in his ministry. Didn't want to just prove I'm in charge here and everybody needs to submit to me, but he wanted the people to want to submit to him. And a lot of that had to do with how he cared for them and how he interacted with them. Now it was in verse three that Paul shifted his attention to one particular group amongst that family member, those family members, and that was the widows. And in verse 3, going all the way down to verse 16, Paul is going to speak with Timothy about the various widows and the ministry that they need to have 
minister to them and in even you'll see today I think or actually next week the ministry that they themselves could be doing and so Paul says in verse 3 he says honor widows who are truly widows and then I'll go on with the rest of the text to explain what he means when he says a true widow because again in our context we think of a true widow as anyone whose husband has died that that makes them a widow but Paul his thinking actually was expanded beyond just simply they have physically lost their husband and so Paul will go on in the rest of this section to explain what he means by a true widow. We uh, began this last week. At that point, I mentioned to you that Paul really had four categories of widows, all of them having lost their husband, but four categories. Did I do that? What did I do? Okay. Four categories of widows. The true widow, that's okay, but I'll get it later. Thank you so much. The true widow, the second one being the widow that has children or grandchildren. So they've lost their husband, but they still have children or grandchildren that can provide for them. The third one was the younger widow. And then the fourth one, Paul doesn't really give it a name, but he, her a name or them a name, but he describes that person. And I'll use the phrase, the worldly widow. And so you have the true widow, you have the widow that has grandchildren or children that can care for them. You have the younger widow, and then you have the worldly widow. Paul's instructions here is the only one of those four groups that should be regularly and financially cared for would be the true widow. And so let me read down to verse 8 so we can see what Paul means when he says that. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever's believer. Now, one of the means by which Paul is going to define a true widow is by telling us what they are not. And he'll do that in various ways through these verses all the way down to verse 16. And so we'll continue to define what a true widow is, even as we look at what a true widow is not. So in verse 4, we had... The second category, notice, if a widow has children or grandchildren, he says, then let those children or grandchildren learn to show godliness to their own household. That was the, the second category, and we spent some time with there. Look at verse 5. He says, because she who is truly a widow left all alone, and then I'll go on and explain something about that. But he further explains verse 4 in verse 5. In verse 4, if she has children or grandchildren, verse 5, then she's not truly all alone. That woman, therefore, should not be regularly and specifically financially supported by the church. There may be a unique need that needs to be met, but to be put on some sort of a list where she is regularly and financially supported, Paul would say, no, it's the responsibility there of the children and the grandchildren to provide care 
for their mother or their grandmother. Widows indeed, as the older versions say, literally have no one to look after them. And thus, as members of the family of God, the onus for their care rests upon the church. Now, that, that may be foreign thinking to many of us. And I think in our culture in which we live, and I'm very grateful that our culture went this direction. It was in like the 1930s. Pre-Great pre Depression, the poorest people in America were widows in America, and they lived in destitution. It was a horrible place for them to be, and they didn't have the ability to physically to get out and do it, what they needed to do to provide for themselves as they were older, and they suffered in squalor. And our nation began to see that and began to take steps to provide for that and Social Security and all those kinds of things. And I'm really glad that we did. I think the danger, however, is now we begin to look and this lady next to me, my, that's not my problem. That's the government's problem. Social Security should be taking care of her. Why should I have to sacrifice myself? Paul and I know that he wrote 2,000 years ago and he didn't have a Social Security system, but I still think he would have said what he said. Paul says, no, that's your primary responsibility. And so in our culture and in our context, we have Social Security, great. Hopefully that'll do what it's supposed to do. Hopefully it'll still be there as a lot of us get older and we need it. But if it can't meet that need, you better know that it's your responsibility to do so as a follower of Jesus Christ, to meet the needs of those in your family. And if they don't have any family members, it becomes our responsibility as a church to meet the needs of those that can't meet their own needs. Those are the women that the church has a responsibility for, the believing uh, women that are a part of our congregation here. Now, you want to go outside of that, and you want to step in and, and care for a neighbor uh, that might live there, and maybe she doesn't near you but doesn't know the Lord, I think you can do that. I think Galatians chapter 6.10 kind of speaks to that idea. But at the very least, your, our primary responsibility is to care for one another. And if that care can't be offered by a, an immediate family member, then we step in and we take that role in the lives of others. You remember in the Gospels, where Jesus called out the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know he did that often. Jesus had a hard time. Jesus could, he would talk to a sinner, quote unquote, and he would spend lots of time with them and demonstrate kindness and mercy, but it just bothered him, the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. And when you see Jesus really calling some people out, it's almost always these outwardly very, very religious people. And there's one instance, it's recorded for us in both the book of Mark and the book of Matthew, where Jesus is calling out some scribes and Pharisees for what we might call phony piety. They really looked religious, but they weren't religious at all. Here's how it reads a little bit. It says, now he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles a father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. Corbin is a word that means that's given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then Jesus concluded, he said, and many other such things. 
That's just one example of the many things that you do. Now, for context, there were many in first century Judaism that thought that a person could avoid his responsibility to support his parents if he had devoted all of his money to God. And they thought, that they thought this because the scribes and Pharisees were teaching this. The scribes and Pharisees, they skirted their responsibility to their parents, which would have been in obedience to God's command, by pretending that all that they owned had been dedicated to God when they died. So here's kind of the picture. They would live in luxury, while their widowed mom would live in squalor, and they would base that, they would defend that, based on a promise that when they died, they had promised they were going to give God everything. I've already committed all of this to God, so I'm sorry, Mom, I can't help you. Now, they hadn't given it yet. They were living in luxury. Everything was fine for them. They had everything they need, but poor Mom was without. I'm sorry, Mom, I can't help you because I promised that I would give it all to God. And Jesus saw that as a lie. He saw it as hypocrisy. He saw that as obeying their traditions but disobeying God's command. It was a phony piety. And throughout the New Testament, we see, throughout the Bible, we see that God is not pleased with a phony, pious, pretend, any other P words we can come up with, you know, way of living. He wants a sincerity of life. And so he says it's the responsibility of the family members. Now skip down to verse 8 for just a second there. We'll go back to verse 5. But in verse 8 he says, For if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So verse 8 there, it states negatively the truth that was, was expressed positively in verse 4. It's saying the same thing, just backwards. Here he states that those who fail to care for their mother in that way are worse than unbelievers. And the point being, unbelievers naturally do this. You're a believer. God's got a hold of your heart. He's softened your heart. He's given you a care for others that was never there before. And you won't even do this very basic thing of caring for your mom? You're worse than an unbeliever there. God's normal way, God can do the miraculous, sure. But his normal way of providing for the needy is not through the local church. But apparently here in Ephesus, where Timothy was being called to minister, there were those there that were acting as if that that was the way things should be. It shouldn't be the church's responsibility or the people's responsibility. It should be the church's. These folks there in Ephesus were trying to escape their own responsibility of supporting their widowed mothers and seeking to shift that responsibility to the church. And Paul says, no, that's not your responsibility. Timothy, that's not the church's responsibility. And make sure they understand that there in the city of Ephesus. Paul used the term there. <clears throat> he says, if anyone does not provide. This is a Greek word that in the original, it means not just to make provision, but to think beforehand of the provision that is going to be needed. It's to anticipate a need and to take necessary steps to be ready for that need. That's what it means, this word provides. And in Paul's view, it was just plain common sense for a person to anticipate having to care for a family member at some point in time in their life. 
And maybe you're putting your money away for your boat or you're putting your money away for this big thing. And then mom needs something. That boat money has to go toward mom's needs. That's what it means to provide. It means to plan ahead and to anticipate and to be ready for when the need comes. Paul's point there about worse than an unbeliever, even an unbeliever understands that. The Christian certainly cannot adopt a lower standard of care for their mother than a person who hasn't been touched by the heart of God. Paul says the person who fails to care in even those simple ways has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Care for your mom is the minimum that is required for you as a Christian. Now Paul says is a denial of the faith. I don't, I don't think what Paul is getting at is that the person's no longer a Christian. I think what he's saying is, look, no matter what kind of religious profession that you make, in Paul's mind, if you won't do this just basic thing, then you have denied what the faith is all about. It's the most basic act of caring. Go back to verse 5, please. Paul says that she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so again, as I mentioned earlier, a true widow is one who is without financial resources. But that alone doesn't qualify her for being regularly and financially supported by the congregation. Paul further goes on with his definition of what a widow indeed is. And he says in verse 5 that she has set her hope on God and that she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And so despite the fact that she has no earthly family members that can assist her, because she has been left all alone, the only place that she can look and the only place that she really continues to look is to her hope in God. Because God throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament as well, has promised a special care for the widows and the orphans. It's as if his eye is especially trained on those individuals or, or people in similar circumstances. And he has promised that he will provide for their needs. Here is this woman. She doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a nephew. She doesn't have a daughter-in-law or anything like that. And the only place where she can look is to God. She sets her hope on God. And she says, Lord, I know that you have promised to provide and to protect and to look out for me as an orphan. And she places her trust that God will do so. Despite the dire circumstances she's facing, and this is important, and this is what really qualifies her as this true widow, is she has not lost her hope and her trust in God. She keeps looking at him. Now, you all smart people. I didn't get any amens, but you are. You're very, very smart people. And you know that the typical means of operation that God operates to provide will not be a pot of gold sitting on your, her front porch. God's not going to, I'll make provision for her. He might. He, I'm sure that sort of thing has happened or lesser forms of that sort of thing. You know, food has arrived or a check has arrived, that sort of thing. But the normal means by which God is going to do it is a human being coming alongside and saying, here, I'm here to help you. 
And God will motivate that person, God will motivate that church, that God will motivate someone in that church to move into that person's life and to begin to offer the support and the care. And through that, God has done a miracle, maybe less supernatural, but he has done a natural miracle by providing for that woman. And that's what she has set her hopes on that God would provide. We'll come back to that as we get down to verse 9 next week. In the meantime, look at verse 5. Let's continue. It says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Notice how verse 6 begins, in my version at least. Yours is probably very similar. It begins with the word but. And that's indicating that there's going to be a contrast. Verse 5 is going to be different than verse 6. In verse 5, he was talking about the woman who set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers each day. In verse 6, he's turning his attention to the self-indulgent woman who he describes as being dead even while she lives. The true widow, in Paul's definition, has concern for others and cares for others as she is able to do so. Even if that just simply means I'm going to commit myself to be praying for our congregation. I can't get out and do this and do that like I once used to. And I don't have the resource to do this or do that like I once did. But I can certainly sit here and pray. And she becomes a prayer war warrior for the congregation. She cares for others, even in that all she can do. The false widow, in contrast, look at verse 6. He says is self-indulgent focused only on herself and on her flesh. The term Paul uses there is a term that could be translated, she has careless ease. Now, I think we want to be careful with that. Because as people begin to accumulate more resources, as you know, you get a little bit older, maybe get promotions, whatever it might be, and you begin to accumulate more resources, life does become, the finances do become a little easier. You do have a little less care. I remember when my car would break down when I was 24, 25, and I had no idea how I was going to, oh my gosh. Now that I'm 55 or close to it, we have a little bit of extra resources in the bank. All right, we, I didn't want to pay for this, but I can. It's not as stressful, perhaps, as it once used to be. And so in some regards, my wife and I were able to live with a little more careless ease. That's not, however, I give you this long explanation, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about this lady is fine, she's comfortable, she's well-to-do enough that she'll be able to get by without any cares. What Paul means here when he uses this phrase translated self-indulgent or he uses this phrase careless leads, it, uh, ease is the person who leads a life of pleasure with no thought of what is right or what is wrong. Involved in whatever she wants to be involved in, sin or not sin, with no thought of, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Is God pleased by this or is he angered or frustrated by this? Paul says that sort of person living in that sort of careless ease is alive physically. But notice he goes on to say she's dead spiritually. And certainly that is a situation that not just some widow might find herself in. I think that's a situation every one of us wrestles with, struggles with throughout our lifetimes. Living in such a way that we're not mindful of heaven. Living in such a way that we, we think 
I'm going to come to my end of, the end of my days and I'm going to stand before a God that will judge even the words that have come out of my mouth. Careless ease has no thought of that. I just do what I want when I want and I could care less. Paul says, far from being supported by the church, a woman that finds herself in that situation needs to be, honestly, and this sounds harsh, but needs to be abandoned to the consequences of their sin. Because hopefully, and again, if we're talking about that woman, or we're talking about a person, who, and we get calls all the time, that calls the church and says, hey, is there any way that you can, you know, the church can pay this bill, or the church can do this or do that? One of the first questions that we're going to ask is, well, come on in, we want to talk to you, we want to find out who we're talking with. Who are you? Why do you find yourself in these circumstances? And if they find themselves in those circumstances because they're continually making decisions of sin that puts them into those circumstances, our support of that individual isn't necessarily going to help them. The consequences of sin, like the prodigal son, have the effect of kind of slapping us on the face bringing us to our senses. What am I doing here? Like the prodigal said, here I am longing for the food that these pigs are eating when there are servants back in my father's home that are eating much better than I am. They're eating like kings there or princes there. I know what I'll do, he says. I'll go back to my father. I'll repent. I'll confess my sin. And perhaps he'll allow me to be a servant in his household too. And then I'll be eating better than my circumstances. But go back to where it all started. It was his circumstances that brought him to his senses. And so if you have this self-indulgent woman that is living in careless ease, doing whatever she wants, not worried about what God might even think about those things, Paul essentially says to Timothy, look, that's the type of person you need to leave to themselves until they come to the end of themselves and they repent and they return. The ones that should be legitimately helped by the church must be attempting to live godly lives, walking with the Lord, setting their hopes on God that he will provide. The widow who turns to a life of careless ease, said Paul, is dead even while she lives. And so it is hard. We're nice people here at Calvary Chapel. You should see the office. Such nice people in the office. Jim, Kyle, Will, Charlotte, man, nice people. And it is hard for us when people will call and they'll say, hey, any way you can write me a check or any way you can give me some money. And we have people come in and, and sometimes we'll say, look, we, and, and the answer ends up being no. And then they storm out, usually curse words coming out of their mouth. I thought you were a church. I don't see how we're helping if we allow a person just to remain in that lifestyle. Paul's going to talk more about this, which means I'm going to talk more about this the next time we come together. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to read this week verses 9 through 16. Seven verses. You can do it. And just spend some time considering it. Because I think, and I've been spending time myself trying to figure some stuff out, I think Paul shifts gears in verse 9. I don't think he is just continuing to restate what he has already been sta uh, stating. And so spend some time with that, look at it, see if you can anticipate uh, maybe the direction that we're going to go. But because we were a little short on time today, we're going to bring our study to a close uh, here this morning. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we are we're challenged by a word like this. At least I, I find myself I am. Because, Lord, everything in our lives points to looking out for number one and looking out for self. And yet here, Lord, you exhort strongly. You say in verse 5, I think it is, you command Timothy with these things, that he is to command others with these things. And so, Lord, whether we're talking about caring for a widow, whether we're talking about a friend here in our church or in this community, we're talking about a young person that doesn't have some folks in his life or her life that may need extra attention. Lord, I think there's a lot of ways in which we can apply it other than the specific way of dealing with our mother or our grandmother. And so, Lord, I... There's a reason why your word is said to be living and active. Because, Lord, you can use even the smallest part of a verse to confirm the working of your Holy Spirit in our heart and the leading of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you would take what we considered today, what we considered last week, and you would make application in our hearts. And then, Father, as always, that we would be obedient, we'd be responsive. We'd walk in the way that you're calling us to walk. And, Lord, we believe in it's in that area that there's great joy. So bless us, Lord, as your children, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.